Our reading this morning is taken from Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and can be found on page 204 in the Church Bibles. We'll cover both chapters and to give us a taste of it all, we'll read selected chunks. So starting at Deuteronomy 27 verses 1 to 4 and then 11 to 17. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, keep all these commands that I give you today. When you have crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. And when you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I commanded you today, and coat them with plaster. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there. Sorry, verse 11. On the same day, Moses commanded the people, when you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph and Benjamin, and these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The the Levites shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice, cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an an idol, a thing detestable to God, the work of the craftsman hands, and sets it up in secret. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who dishonours his father or his mother. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who moves his neighbour's boundary stone. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Then going on to Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 to 9. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you go out and when you come in and and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then going on to verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed, and the crops of your land, and the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. 
You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering in to possess. And then 58 to 63. If you do not carefully follow all the words of this law, which are written in this book, and do not revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, the Lord will send fearful plagues on you to your descendants, harsh and prolonged disasters, and severe and lingering illnesses. He will bring upon you he will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded, and they will cling to you. The Lord will also bring on you every kind of sickness and disaster not recorded in this book of the law until you are destroyed. You, who were as numerous as the stars in the sky, will be left but few in number because you did not obey the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. This is the word of the Lord. Our leaders in a prayer as we begin. Here's a verse from a psalm I was reading this morning. Blessed is the man who, or woman who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. We thank you, Father, that in your words our life is found. And we pray, Father, that as we look at these commands now, that we would, like the psalmist, delight in them. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the um, invention of the internet has given us a lot of good things over the years. But um, one of the most frustrating things about the internet is its number of terms and conditions. It seems like you, you cannot buy an item, you cannot install an app, you can't even visit most websites without first being presented with an encyclopedia worth, encyclopedia's worth of terms and conditions, which at the end asks you, have you read them, have you understood them, and do you accept them? I mean, put your hand up if you've actually read those terms and conditions and understood them. You're lying <laughs> at the back there. <laughs> None of us do it, do we? We've become so blasé about terms and conditions that we just get through them as quick as possible and press accept at the bottom. And who can blame us? But there is the danger, as we're going to think about this morning, that, that we treat a relationship with God like we treat internet terms and conditions. There is the danger that we become blasé about what it means to be bound to God, to be in relationship with Him. Now, in our passage this morning, Moses sets out the terms and conditions of a relationship with God. And it's important we see this morning that we're not to treat these like internet terms and conditions and get through them or switch off, but that we're to understand what a relationship with God entails, whether we're a Christian or whether we're looking into the Christian faith. Now, let's um, get our bearings uh, before we dive into the passage. We're in the book of Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is written... Uh, just before Israel go into the promised land. And we've said in previous weeks that this is Moses' greatest hits album. It's his last release. And uh, he's given us a set of sermons. And in our passage this morning, we're in the second sermon. This has been a, a long sermon, longer than some of mine even. 
Uh, he's uh, spoken about the law. He's, he's gone through how the people should live. And we come right to the end in these two chapters. And he caps them off by setting out the terms and conditions of a relationship with God. Now, I guess some of us might be asking, is it appropriate language to be using, you know, talking about terms and conditions for a relationship with God? I mean, after all, aren't relationships kind of free and easy and fluid? Um, it seems kind of out of place, doesn't it, to talk about terms for a relationship with God. But as we're going to see in our first point this morning, that that is to misunderstand what a relationship with God is like. See, to know God is to be bound by his decrees. It's to be bound to his word. Now, how do we see this? Well, Moses gives some arrival instructions for Israel. Have a look at chapter 27, verse 2. Moses says this, when you have crossed over the Jordan into the land the Lord your God has given you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over to enter the land. Verse 4, when you have crossed over the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I command you today, and coat them with plaster. Now, um, I've got here an example of what this would have looked like. I'm afraid it's bad um, resolution, and it's crumbled a bit, but it is uh, about 3,000 years old. So, um, you'll, get, you'll get an idea. Here's, um, on the left, you can just make out some, uh, some script, some writing, and um, there were to, we don't know how many, but there were lots of these stones coated with plaster, and the whole of Moses' law is to be written on them, and they're to be stored up on this mountain. Now, Mount Ebal is um, it's the kind of midpoint of the nation, so it's kind of like the Birmingham of Israel. And uh, I'm sorry if you're Scottish, because that, does, that probably doesn't seem the midpoint for you, but you kind of get the idea. Now, why does Moses um, do this? Well, he wants us to see that these words were meant to be at the center point of the nation. The whole nation is to be bound by God's law. See, Moses' words aren't just useful advice or to be followed for an age and then can go out of fashion. They are words from God. And as such, they're to be kept generation by generation. Now, I wonder if we miss some of the significance of this, partly because a lot of us um, are from the UK, and in the UK, we don't have a written constitution. Now, I wonder if I was speaking to an American audience this morning, whether um, we'd understand this a little bit more, because they have a constitution uh, right at the center of their nation in Washington, D.C. Here's a picture of it. Um, You'll see there uh, that the constitution's written, and um, it's guarded by some pretty scary-looking people. And it's a a constant reminder, right at the center of the American nation, that these words bind them together. It's what form their nation. It's what they live by. And so it is with Israel. They lived, literally, under the word of God. But the word isn't kind of just to sit there passive in, in a cabinet visited now and again. It was to be in the minds and the hearts of every single person day by day. Now, Moses um, gets the people to do this by um, carrying out a huge initiation ceremony. Uh, He picks two mountains, Ebel's one of them, and then Gerizim. Uh, Here's a picture of those two mountains. You'll see why they um, are useful in a moment. Um, He divides the, the nation in two. He puts half the nation on one mountain, half the nation on the other mountain, and then the Levites, this group of kind of um, people who look after the religious life of the nation, they go in the middle, 
you're with me so far. And um, they read out all the law. And they read out the blessings that are to come if they obey the law. But they also read out the curses that come if they disobey the law. And as they do, each mountain shouts, Amen. One for the curses, one for the blessings. Now, I was hoping to do this this morning. Um, I thought we could just divide the room in two. Um, one half go that way, one half go that way, and we get Corinne here at the, in the middle to shout out the whole law, and we all shout Amen. Or even better, we go up to Crabtree Plantation and do it on the hills there. But apparently that would take too long. So um, you're going to have to kind of imagine this in your head, and um, you can kind of picture it, can't you? Look at verse 15. Cursed is the man who carves an idol, or car- carves an image, or casts an idol. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who dishonors his father or mother. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. And then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who leads the blind astray on the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. And kind of, you get a summary statement in verse 26. Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Kind of get the picture, don't you? Just imagine how long this would have taken and what it would have sounded like on these two mountains. Now, why is um, Moses going to all this trouble? Why bother doing this? Well, he wants Israel to be clear of the terms and conditions of their relationship with God. Now, when I worked um, back in uh, financial regulation, we found that people were so blasé about terms and conditions and um, because of the internet that uh, when it came to some terms and conditions that were actually important, like uh, mortgage terms and conditions, actually people didn't bother reading those and they would just kind of sign the the paperwork at the bottom. So we had to kind of put big warnings, a bit like you get on cigarettes, uh, to say, if you don't pay your mortgage, your house will be repossessed in bold print uh, right at the top of the terms and conditions. And Moses is doing that with the people. He gets them to hear it, he gets them to say amen, because he wants them to know that they're bound by this law. They're not in a casual friendship with God. They're not just Facebook buddies. They're bound to his law. Now, I guess some of us will think the idea of being bound to God's law sounds a little bit mechanical. It's kind of a bit devoid of love. But we need to remember, this is really important, that um, God's law was given so that the people would flourish. See, God wants the people all through this book to choose the good life. God wants people to choose the good life. Now, if you've got kids, you'll know this. Um, I presume if you've got children, you set them boundaries. I've heard that's a good thing to do. You should do that. But um, the reason you set boundaries for children is not because you want to make their life difficult. I mean, I know the kids will think that, but that's not your motivation. No, you give them boundaries because you love them, because you want your children to flourish. And so it is with God. Moses reminds the people that they are bound to God's word because it was good for them. Now, you can just imagine, can't you, looking at these mountains, what effect this would have had on the nation. Imagine a farmer rolling out of bed, stumbling across to the window, pulling back the curtains and being presented with these two mountains. And he reminds himself, oh yes, we're a nation under God's law. I better keep on the right mountain. I better do 
the right thing. Or a mother taking her children to school, and uh, on the school run, she takes them through the valley between the two mountains, and as she does, she explains to her children that we are a nation that is bound to God's word. Make sure you stay on the right mountain. Make sure you're blessed. Now, I guess as Christians, we look at this and we think, this is a different world. It's not our world, and in some ways, it's not. We're not a nation like Israel, and we're not under the law like they were. But that doesn't mean we're any less bound by God's word. Now, if I was to ask you a question, if I was to say to you, how would you describe the Christian life? I guess you may say something like, it's to love Jesus, or to know Jesus. But how does the New Testament express that love, or express that knowledge? Well, it's in keeping Jesus' words. John 14, Jesus, in John 14, Jesus says this, if you love me, keep my commands. And John puts it like this, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, he is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. See, the moment you become a Christian, you become bound to Jesus' words. Remember, this is not a bad thing. This is the way we flourish and thrive. Jesus says, after all, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But now we live bound to Jesus' words. In a few weeks' time, we've got the confirmation and baptism service coming up. And um, I love the bit of the service where the candidates are asked whether they want to be baptized and they're asked to make certain declarations. Now, um, it's a the language is quite old, but it's, um, it's really good language. Um, three of the, there are six questions, six questions? That's six questions. And um, uh, three of the questions about what they turn from, from sin uh, and rebellion and that sort of thing. And then three of the questions are asked what they turn to. And here's um, the fourth question. Do you turn to Christ as Savior? I turn to Christ. And then here's the next question. Do you submit to Christ as Lord? And it's a great question, isn't it? Because it reminds us that we don't just turn to Jesus as Savior, but we turn to Him as Lord. We're bound to His words. Now, His words are good. They give life. They cause us to flourish. But we mustn't forget that we are bound to them. It can be easy, can't it, to think that we're kind of saved by Jesus, and that's it. And um, now we're just kind of twiddling our thumbs. And we can think that the Word of God is there to kind of give us more data, to kind of train us up a bit more, that the sermon or the house group study is, is primarily there to increase our knowledge. But actually, Jesus shows us that He governs His church and shapes His church and shapes our lives by His Word. And so, just as Israel were to live their life under this mountain with the Word on it, so too are we to live under Jesus' words, and it is to shape every aspect of our lives. Now, why does this matter that um, we're bound to God's word in this way? What difference does it make? Well, that's what we're going to turn to consider in our second point this morning, because um, now that Israel is bound to God's word, Moses sets out some of the implications in chapter 28. Now, chapter 28, it splits in two, um, in two halves, but it's two uneven halves. The first half is a lot shorter than the second. And in the first half, he outlines all the blessings that come from the people uh, obeying. 
And in the second half, the longer half, he sets out all the curses uh, if the people disobey. Now, the way to understand this chapter is to keep in mind that there's a relationship between God, the people, and the land. Now, on your service sheets, you'll see I've put that little triangle in, and um, this is where it gets exciting, well, for me at least, um, because you'll see that um, I, if the people um, break the relationship with God, that, that kind of point A on the triangle, it doesn't just stay there, it has implications for their relationship with the land, point B on the triangle. Now, that is quite a simple point. I don't know why I needed to give you a triangle uh, to explain that, but there you go. Um, I, I find it quite exciting drawing a picture. So, um, there we go. You get the point. See, if the people um, keep the law, they'd be blessed in the land. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 28. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. And verse 3 you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves and your herds and your lambs and your flocks, the, your basket and your needham trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Now, you've got to keep in mind the agricultural language here. You know, this is an agricultural nation. It's a kind of equivalent of Moses saying, you're blessed keep your job, you'll have food on the table, that sort of thing. Now, Moses isn't saying that God's like a vending machine. We don't kind of put our obedience in the coin slot at the top and wait for blessings to pop out at the bottom. And he isn't saying that you need to obey God so he will turn and decide to bless you. No, God's people are already blessed. They've already been rescued from Egypt. They're already in this relationship, but now they are. They're to keep faithful to him to enjoy the ongoing blessings. But of course, there is another side to the coin. If Israel disobeys and turn away from God, then they'll be cursed. Now, initially, you'll see um, these curses are the kind of flip side. They're, they're kind of 180 uh, on, the, um, on, on the blessings. So have a look at verse 16. It says this, You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your need in trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You'll be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. Do you see the point? It's a complete reversal, isn't it, of the blessings. But actually, if you glance across those two pages, you'll see that the curses go on a lot longer. And as you read through, you see these curses ratchet up. So have a look at verse 28. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you will grope like a blind man in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. Now, initially, the, the people are cursed in the land, but eventually, as you go through even further, they're, they're cast out of the land. Verse 36, have a look at that. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your fathers. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. Or verse 64, then the Lord will scatter you among all the nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. See, the point is, as the people turn away from God, 
everything God has done for them will be undone. Like picking part threads on a bit of cloth, God will take back every blessing he's made, right until they get back to where they started. Have a look at verse 68. The Lord will send you back in ships to Egypt. On a journey I said you should never make again, there you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. Do you see the point? Back at Egypt, slaves again. Now, this is not an easy chapter to read. If Israel breaks their relationship with God, they face plagues, their nation will be ravished, they will be besieged by enemies. Verse 52 onwards describes a grotesque picture of cannibalism as their enemies besiege them. And it might be that we read these chapters and we're tempted to write them off as a kind of description of a cruel God. Or we're tempted to think that this is the angry God of the Old Testament. But Moses writes what he does because he doesn't want this to happen. He wants the people to stick with what is good. Now, I was thinking about this, and I I thought, actually, our culture has got some examples of this. So, um, here's an ad I'm going to show us uh, from a few years back, and uh, you'll see what I mean. get the parallels? This is all going to happen if you make the wrong choice. So don't make the wrong choice. What's it going to be? Moses is asking, the whole point of putting these curses across is to say, what's it going to be? He knows that the good life is found with God alone. He wants the people to flourish, and to flourish is to not turn from God. Now, how as Christians are we to, to read this chapter because it does seem very different um, to our world. And it's important to see that we don't just draw a straight line from this chapter right to us. We don't live under law like Israel did. And if you're wondering how we don't and how we do, um, listen to the previous two talks. Um, Clive and Tim did an excellent job of of setting out um, how we're to treat the law. So we're not to read this and think to ourselves, if we keep the law, then suddenly we'll have a better job or a more prosperous home. Or if we break the law, then we'll lose our house and find ourselves scattered by enemies on the other side of the world. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't still care about obedience. See, often I think we talk as Christians that um, we, we say because of what Jesus has done, that obedience is kind of now an optional extra or it's an add-on to the faith. Or God is kind of chilled out about obedience. Uh, I remember I was in a previous church and uh, someone went up front and they explained a bit about how they became a Christian. And this was a very experienced person. And um, on a few occasions they said, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what we do. And I thought to myself, I know what they're getting at. I know they're trying to say that actually when it comes to justification, when it comes to getting right with God, 
It's not our works that does that. But that is not saying the same thing as it doesn't matter what we do. See, in fact, as you look at the New Testament, you see that obedience does matter. In fact, Jesus says so. Have a look at John 15 here. It says, uh, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You can see, can't you, the, the echoes of the, the blessing language. But in the next verse he says, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. This is Jesus' words. See, obedience does matter. It does matter that you stay faithful to Jesus. See, like with Israel, the good life is found by being bound to God, bound to his word, glued to him. And so it is with us. If we're to flourish and thrive, we need to cling to Jesus. It might be in a room this size that um, there are some people contemplating chucking the towel in with Jesus. I guess uh, if it's not us now, there will be a day when that comes. And I'm sure there'd be reasons for that. There are probably struggles, probably temptations, and it probably seems impossible to believe that the path with Jesus really is the path to blessing. But Moses reminds us that it is, that the path of blessing, no matter how hard it is now, is found with God. But if we're honest, if the Bible, moving into our third point, stopped after Deuteronomy 28, it would be terrifying, wouldn't it? See, perhaps some of us are already asking in our seats, how do I know I've done enough obedience? How do I know that I will obey in the future? Which is why these chapters show us not just that we're bound to God's word, not just that obedience is necessary, but that we need a saviour. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, it's on page 1170. This is the only bit of page flicking. Um, so it's page 1170. See here, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 27. If you're writing notes, it's verse 26. But have a look at 3 verse 10. He says this, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, remember this, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now, I don't know if you notice this. It's easy to miss. I've missed it several times. But the point Paul makes doesn't actually fit the quote. See, the quote says, and we've seen this, haven't we, in Deuteronomy, those who don't do the law will be cursed. But do you see the point Paul's making? Those who observe the law are the ones who are cursed. Do you see the point? Deuteronomy is saying those who don't do it are cursed. Paul is saying, no, it's those who do do it that are cursed. Now, why does he use the quote in that way? Has he misunderstood it? Well, no, he's given us a history lesson. See, he's reminding us of what happened after Deuteronomy 28. 
See, Paul knows, and uh, Israel knows, that, that it didn't take long for the people to break their commitment. They carried out this ceremony on the two mountains, but it quickly became yesterday's news, and they quickly broke the terms and conditions. We're not talking about the odd hiccup here and there. We're talking about a wholesale turning away from God to idols. And as they did, like Moses promised, the blessings turned to curses, and the horrors of Deuteronomy 28 fell on their shoulders. See, looking back, having seen the rest of the Old Testament play out, Deuteronomy reads now less like a hypothetical warning of what might happen, but a description of the horrors of Israel's history. And quoting from Deuteronomy, Paul brings to mind all that history to say, don't think you can do any better. Don't think that you can secure blessing because of your obedience. If you do, you will follow the same cursed path as Israel. So we mustn't, here at St. Mary's, think from Deuteronomy that we, we just kind of muster up all our strength and try to live the law better than they did because you won't do it. Jonathan Edwards, um, not the jumper, the uh, theologian who lived 250 years ago, he, he put it better than I can. He says this, all your righteousness has no influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell any more than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. See, all of us, left to our own devices, would not choose the good life. We would choose curse. None of us would obey more than Israel. None of us would be able to keep loyal to the terms and conditions. But there is another way. Paul goes on in 3 verse 13 to say this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now I've read that verse in the past and I thought to myself, why does, why does he put it like that? It seems a bit peculiar. Why not say Christ died for us? Or, or why not say that Christ died for sin? Why Christ became a curse. But hopefully, now from Deuteronomy, we can see, can't we, those, that significance. Jesus was cursed, like Moses predicts. As I was preparing this sermon, and I was looking through some of these curses, some, if I'm honest, I winced at, some I didn't want to read, some of them turned my stomach. But the most terrifying verse I came across was this. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. Now the point of the verse is clear, isn't it? In the same way God is pleased to bless Israel, he's going to go 180 and be pleased to curse them. But it's a hard verse to hear because of that word pleased. We cannot imagine God being so intent to ruin and destroy, except that's what he did with his son. See, Jesus came and he did do everything that was written in the book of the law. He kept loyal to God. 
He kept the terms of the relationship. Every line, every word, every letter, Jesus lived out every day. And according to Moses, he deserved blessing. Jesus deserved to be blessed in the city. But instead, he was crucified outside the city. And every horror we read from the lips of Moses fell on Jesus' shoulders. See, Jesus was ruined and destroyed. He was cursed so that you and me wouldn't be. See, ultimately, these chapters are here not because we can obey, but to show us that we cannot. But Jesus has. The same God who instructed Moses to give these curses is the same God who knew that one day he would come to his people and take each word of these curses on himself. Now we read these chapters not in terror, but that we know the promise of blessing is for us now and forever. Not because of our obedience, but because Christ became a curse for us. I love the way this song puts it, Man of Sorrows. It says this, Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. Let's pray. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise you for the beauty of those words that Christ took the curse that was due to us. We pray, Father, as we think on Moses' words that we would not cry out in terror, but cry out in mercy, for mercy and come to the cross of Christ. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.